This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So I'm going to talk today about how to look for life um, elsewhere in the solar system. And I want to motivate why this is an interesting question and why we would want to look in our solar system as opposed to in the galaxy beyond. So I'm going to start by um, asking the question and not answering it as to whether the origin of life and the potential prevalence of life is something that's baked into the nature of the cosmos. So if you look at the evolution of the cosmos in a very, very broad brush way, it really divides into three things. The middle thing here, which is galaxies, stars, and planets, is astronomy as it's practiced today. Um, galaxies or clusters of galaxies are the essentially the fundamental unit of structure in our universe today. Um, they're held together not by normal luminous matter, but actually by dark matter, which is not well understood, but is most of the matter in the cosmos. The content of the galaxies themselves is uh, gas and dust and stars. Uh, and as uh, has been learned in the last 20 years, on average, in our galaxy at least, uh, for every star there's a planet. So planets are as abundant as stars in the universe. So whatever process forms stars goes on to form planets as well. So there's an evolutionary process there, but it has to begin with the development of structure. And the development of structure in the universe begins in the upper part of this figure uh, with uh, essentially three constructs or events. One is the Big Bang, which is um, essentially the, the beginning of the expansion of the universe uh, and actually the beginning of the universe's matter and energy as we understand them. And then there are two other things up there that are not quite as well understood and, and actually are rather speculative. Now, the Big Bang itself was, um, is a fairly uh, well-accepted concept that the universe, as we know, uh, space is expanding. In fact, it's accelerating. And so a finite period of time ago, uh, all of the matter and energy in the universe was in a very, very different state, a much, much hotter and much more compressed state. Uh, than it's in today. But how did it get that way? And one of the clues to that comes from looking at the cosmic microwave background radiation, uh, which is this radiation that suffuses all of space, and we see it as a kind of a horizon. Um, it's, it was discovered in radio wavelengths. It's, it's measured now in what's called the far infrared. And uh, it's a horizon in the history of the universe, of this expanding, cooling universe when the universe became dilute enough and cool enough that light could actually move through space without being instantly absorbed by matter, by charged particles. And that horizon tells us something very interesting because although it's depicted on this slide as being uh, sort of spotty and those spots correspond to differences in temperature where blue is a lower than average temperature and yellow is a higher temperature, uh, the actual variation in temperature here is uh, something on the order of a part per thousand. So the universe, uh, even though it had some amount of variation in it, 
that variation was not very large. Different parts of the universe were in uh, essentially was called equilibrium with each other. And in fact, if you map this cosmic background radiation, it has uh, the most perfect of, of pretty much any physical thing in the universe, the most perfect spectrum, that's the distribution of light versus wavelength, for what's called a black body, a, a thing or an entity at a single given temperature. Um, so how did it get that way? So that's where inflation comes in. That's the box right above the Big Bang. And inflation was invented by theorists to try to explain a couple of issues. One is the flatness of the universe. Even though space is curved by matter, uh, the universe seems remarkably flat. And the other is to try to explain how these different parts of the universe, as exemplified by this horizon uh, at which light could just begin to escape from matter, and that, by the way, was about 400,000 years after the Big Bang, how that could actually come to be, because uh, all information moves only at the speed of light. And so in order for different parts of this early universe to be in contact with each other, the universe had to be orders of magnitude smaller than it actually um, not only is today, but would have been at that time. Otherwise, these different parts of the universe, as the Big Bang occurred and the universe began to expand and cool, they would have uh, arrived at very, very different temperatures, and the universe would be much, much lumpier than it actually is today. So uh, the idea is that inflation was some process that started the universe off at a very, very infinitesimal size, and something happened that caused the universe to expand suddenly. So if this balloon is a sort of a crude model of the universe, and uh, we imagine that space, which is three-dimensional for us, is just the two-dimensional surface of this balloon. And it's hard for you to see, but you can see little dots on here. You can imagine that when the universe is very small, these dots, uh, the amount of time it takes for light to get from one dot to another is, is very small. And of course, with the balloon, I can't shrink it to some infinitesimal size, so you'll have to imagine that. But in this inflation process, As the universe expands and expands almost instantaneously, these different areas that were in equilibrium, in thermal equilibrium with each other, suddenly become isolated from each other. And the bigger the balloon gets, the smaller the radius of curvature. So eventually you get to a point where space is hardly curved at all. It seems to be flat, even though it started out as this tiny curved thing. So what actually caused inflation? Well, the answer is nobody knows. Um, and that's not a comment about the theory, but it really is a theory. And it actually is a problem because it is a transition point between things that can be described by physics, like the Big Bang, and things that really perhaps can't be described by physics. So you might ask the question, well, what did inflation actually act upon? And if you ask a cosmologist that question, they'll probably shrug their shoulders, but some of them will say, well, um, it, was, it, it was acting upon perturbations in uh, a quantum vacuum. A quantum vacuum or a false vacuum is essentially something that has words put to it. It's, it's emptiness 
but it's not really nothingness. Uh, it is uh, essentially a space where there is a lot of energy packed into that space itself, not in particles or matter or anything like that, but in the fabric of space itself. And there are little fluctuations associated with the uncertainty principle in quantum mechanics. And maybe some of those suddenly budded like a flower and kind of blew up and you had inflation. And then you had the Big Bang where that energy of space got converted to matter and energy. You notice I'm waving my hands a lot. And that's because this part of the story of the evolution of the universe is actually not uh, accessible to experiment. So there must be some point here where we go, if we go back in time, from, we, we go back from the astrophysics of the Big Bang and the formation of clusters of galaxies and so forth, uh, and the physics associated with it, to perhaps metaphysics. Um, the great cosmologist, 20th century cosmologist and Catholic priest, Georges Lemaitre, said that as far as he was concerned, whatever happened before the Big Bang was a question of metaphysics, not of physics. Now, he actually thought about inflation decades before Alan Guth, who is credited with this, uh, wrote papers on it, and Guth himself actually credits Lemaitre. But this is the problem, that we get to a point in the earliest part of the evolution of the cosmos where our physics essentially fails. And one can imagine constructs that are like the physics that we have in the laboratory, but those are really analogies rather than necessarily physical things. So that is one of the kinds of issues we want to try to tackle with Scientia uh, and this project. We want theologians and, and philosophers and metaphysicians to, to talk to, to physicists and try to understand each other and maybe make some progress in what actually is occurring across this boundary. So then the question is, we get to life. And life on the other end of the spectrum is a planetary phenomenon. Um, is the origin of life uh, a miracle? Or is it something that is part of the physical processes of the universe that are baked into that universe by the creator. One of the things about life, if you look at the right-hand arrows, time is moving down on this uh, little graph. To the right of that time arrow is something called order and beauty and perhaps complexity. The universe itself, as it expands, uh, its entropy is going up, its ability to do work or its degree of order is going down. But as that happens, there are regions within the universe that become more ordered and um, perhaps in, in a way more beautiful. Is life more beautiful than a supernova? There's many ways I think it is. Um, so this progression uh, over time toward structures that are more complex, carry more information, perhaps have a, a content in some way that is more beautiful, um, is a part of that evolution of the universe. If that is the case, why couldn't life be a common outcome of the evolution of the universe? And if it is a common outcome, then we should see it um, on planets everywhere. So do we look for life um, in the form of self-aware, intelligent life elsewhere in the cosmos, or do we look for something else? The, the evolution of the Earth has an answer for us, I think. Um, what I've done here is not original. Carl Sagan in uh, his TV series Cosmos did this on a larger scale. It's to put the whole history of the universe from 13.8 billion years ago when the Big Bang occurred 
to the present day onto a 12-month calendar. And so the Big Bang occurs on uh, January 1st at 12 midnight, some great cosmic ball drops in a cosmic time square, and everything begins. On that scale, the first stars in the universe appear in the first week in January. So things really get going pretty quickly. And then stars evolve and they convert their hydrogen into helium. And actually these early stars are just hydrogen and helium because the Big Bang doesn't produce any other elements. But these stars tend to be very, very massive, the early stars that don't have other elements in them. So they evolve very quickly, they explode, they have produced in their interiors heavier elements that are then expelled into the cosmos by this process of uh, fusion and then supernova explosion. And that heavy element debris becomes the raw material for the next generation of stars and the next generation of stars, of which our sun is a third generation star. There was probably enough in the way of heavy elements, rock-forming elements, carbon, nitrogen, etc., by sometime in May to um, produce planets. Prior to that, with only hydrogen and helium, all you could really do is make massive stars. The formation of the Earth, the origin of the Earth, that point in time is very, very well known from dating um, rocks, meteorites that have uh, radioactive isotopes in them that decay at a known rate. And that turns out to be on this calendar on September 3rd, which is a nice date because that is the birthday of my sister. So she was born when the earth was born, but we have to rescale things. Uh, she's younger than me, actually. So um, that date's known precisely, but then the origin of life is not. What is known is that by the second week, late in the second week of September, the Earth has liquid water. That's known from the geologic record. And certainly by the end of September, and maybe the third week in September, there is life. There are trace indicators in very ancient rocks of what appear to be very primitive microorganisms. Now, if you'll notice, there are no other red circles from late September until uh, December the 15th. And that is the date on which uh, the first complex animals in the Cambrian explosion appear. Plants appear a little bit earlier than that, but there's a two-month period in the cosmic calendar where the Earth's biota is entirely microbial, unicellular, sometimes in associations like, like bacterial colonies and so forth, maybe some very primitive, undifferentiated animals uh, in early December, but that's a very long period of time. It's most of the history of the Earth. And human beings don't arrive until, because I've set this calendar this way, until December the 31st at five minutes before midnight. We pop the bottle of champagne. So over the whole history of the cosmos, it took the Earth four months, which is a third of the history of the universe, to produce sentient, self-aware beings, namely ourselves. That's a long time. Now, it's also a somewhat disturbing time because if you look into the next year of the cosmic calendar, by the third or fourth week in January, the Earth will become uninhabitable because our sun, as it's converting hydrogen into helium by the fusion process, 
is gradually getting brighter. This is not the cause of global warming that you know, we're worried about, but it's a kind of a geologic time global warming. The sun is gradually getting brighter and brighter. That's understood and observed with other stars. And so by late January, the amount of sunlight that the Earth will get at its surface will be enough to begin to evaporate the oceans, create a kind of a super greenhouse effect, and uh, that water will be lost to space. So that, that will be the end. Now, there will be a new heaven and a new Earth for us, but for the Earth itself as a planet, that's the end, only a month after human beings showed up. So the point of all this is that it may be that even if the origin of life as microbial life happens quickly on planets, and therefore life is common, maybe intelligent self-aware beings like ourselves or even complex animals are not all that common in the cosmos. So the first thing that one wants to do in looking for life is to look for the most common kind of life. And while listening with radio telescopes for signals from extraterrestrials is relatively easy to do, nothing has come of it. And the reason nothing has come of it possibly is because we are largely alone. It may be that it is just takes too much time to make intelligent beings like ourselves. That's a speculation. So let's focus on simple primitive life. And there are two places to go look for simple primitive life. One is in our solar system and the other is in the rest of the galaxy. It is possible now with the James Webb Space Telescope to measure the composition of the atmospheres of planets around other stars, planets the size of the Earth. This, by the way, is the mirror of JWST shrunk to size uh, full size would be about 23 feet across. It's a very sensitive telescope, and uh, it gets around the problem that uh, people have known since uh, the end of the 16th century. Giordano Bruno said it very well that stars are very bright, planets are very dim, the planets get lost in the light of their stars. So JWST can pull that light out by various techniques. But that tells you the composition of the atmosphere. It doesn't tell you whether life is present. And that is still a daunting problem. How would you actually know that on some planet where there is water, where there's carbon dioxide, um, methane maybe, um, how do you know that life is causing it? That's really beyond our technology today. Super telescopes in the future may be able to do that, but it is, remains a daunting problem. So for the near future, my view is that the solar system is actually the right place to go because... Current technology allows us to send robotic probes all the way across the solar system to land on places, to sample material, and that's what's being done today. So I'm going to focus the rest of my time on asking the question, are there places in our solar system where microbial life that had an independent origin from life on Earth might exist today? So our first stop is Mars. Uh, that's always a favorite. Uh, it's 10% the mass of the Earth, pretty close to us. Uh, it does, unfortunately, have an, uh, an environment that is not only uh, unfriendly to life, but is actually sterilizing. Uh, the air pressure at the surface of Mars is the equivalent of being in a balloon 80 or 90,000 feet above the surface of the Earth. And because of that, ultraviolet light gets all the way down to the surface of Mars and literally sterilizes the surface. 
So life cannot exist today at the surface of Mars. Organic bonds would be broken, and the temperatures averaged over the year are too cold for liquid water. But Mars, early in its history, did not look like this. There's ample evidence now from exploration of Mars over 50 years that the first quarter of Mars's history involved a planet that looked very different from the one we have today with a dense atmosphere, warmer temperatures, and liquid water standing on the surface long enough to allow minerals to react and become uh, evaporites that provide that evidence today. So very quickly, um, the blue is evidence for water today, but that water is mostly in the form of ice. There's hydrogen in the soil. There are layers perhaps of ice or water detected by orbiting radar at low latitudes on Mars. The polar caps of Mars are a mix of carbon dioxide ice and water ice. And then the red uh, is evidence for water in the past. There are many places on Mars where the surface is carved by uh, what appears to have been running water, valley networks and outflow channels. Those are very ancient and they're all dry today. There are minerals that can be seen from orbits, sulfates and carbonates that are formed when rock reacts with liquid water. And so there was standing liquid water at some time in the past. Um, locally, at sites where rovers have been sent, there are geologic structures like cross bedding that indicate that water was running for some period of time in those places. Uh, and there are rocks called mudstones that are produced as you have uh, streams or lakes or whatever that are gradually drying up. So there's ample evidence for water. Here's one geological example. This is a marvelous machine, the Curiosity rover, which was designed and built at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. It arrived at Mars in 2012 and is in its 11th year now of exploring Gale Crater, finding plenty of evidence that this crater had standing liquid water. The, the image on the, on the, by the way, that's a selfie uh, there's a boom with a camera, and then to make it look like someone else took the picture, JPL photoshops out the, the, the camera boom, which I don't know why they do that, but it's very cute. Um, so anyway, on the right is, is an area in the crater uh, where you see a sort of a shelf, and if you go close up to that shelf, on the left-hand side are um, uh, very, very poorly sorted pebbles that are rounded, that have a variety of colors, and on the right is the equivalent uh, where you once had a stream on the earth that has dried up. Those areas look geologically the same. And that is just one of a whole series of lines of evidence for standing liquid water in this area on Mars at Gale Crater. So there's water, <clears throat> there's sunlight. In order for, to have life, you have to have organic molecules. The first spacecraft to test for organic molecules on Mars were two landers in 1976, Viking 1 and Viking 2. They um, landed in places uh, where uh, they found no organic matter whatsoever using uh, the most sophisticated instruments at the time, uh, a, a mass spectrometer and gas chromatograph. It was not until 2018 that organic matter was detected on the surface of Mars. And to give you a sense of how long that is, this is what I looked like in not quite 1977, but about 1980. And this is what I looked like when they discovered organics on Mars. Now, that is basically an entire adult lifetime, pretty much. 
Uh, and, you know, there's a sobering, serious point to this, which is just trying to find carbon-bearing molecules on the second closest planet to the Earth, Venus is first, has taken us the better part of a half century. So this search for life is not going to be easy. It is not going to be short. It requires a tremendous amount of persistence and patience. And those organic molecules are there at the Curiosity site because they were buried under the surface and the soil could be dug out. And these happen to have sulfur. That yellow atom that you see there in that depiction of the structure is a sulfur atom. And the black are carbon and the whites are hydrogen. Sulfur is a great preservative. And so whatever organic molecules were there at that site were all destroyed except the ones that were the most resilient, the ones that contained sulfur. So there were organics at the Gale Crater site along with liquid water. So maybe there was life at one point. Uh, so that bolsters the case for life in the past when Mars was more habitable. There's an intriguing discovery if you look at the third bullet here that at the Gale Crater site, um, there is a flux of methane, CH4, which is very unstable in the Mars atmosphere. It sort of wafts in in the evening and disappears during the day, and it's measured by the Curiosity rover's chemical experiments. Um, it could be biological from some microorganisms that are under the surface. It could be geological, although you need a lot of liquid water to do the geology. Um, or it could be ancient methane that's been trapped somehow in ice. No one knows the answer to that, but it's very, very intriguing. So the next step in the search for life is to actually bring samples back, because it's very hard to do the kinds of tests that you would need to look for fossils for evidence of ancient life uh, by putting the instruments in uh, at even as big as this rover is. It's the size of a small SUV. It's very hard to do it. So the next mission, which landed um, a year ago, February, in another crater called Jezero Crater, is the Perseverance rover. And the western end of the Jezero Crater, as you see on the left-hand side of this image, has been excavated by what looks like a channel, which is dry now. And that material has been dumped out in the form of a small delta. Uh, the little crater that's pockmarked it is about a kilometer across. That gives you the scale. And so that was an area where there was enough liquid water to create the equivalent of a river delta. So maybe that's a place to go look for life. This is what the edge of that river delta looks like, as seen from the Perseverance rover. It's pretty wild geology. Uh, those cliffs are about 10 meters high. And Perseverance rover is collecting samples from there. And its, its traverse is shown on the lower right from where it landed to where it is today. And um, it does not carry sophisticated chemical analyzers. The body of this rover, which is also large, has a complex sample handling system, which is designed to take tubes that are about this long, this long, and uh, put those tubes into a drill. And the drill then cores a sample and fills the tube with soil, and the tube is sealed and put in the body of the rover. There are 40 of these sample tubes. Those sample tubes will, will be brought back to Earth. Perseverance also carries with it a novel um, a helper, and that's a little helicopter called Ingenuity. And this is one of the pictures that um, 
just to me is amazing having, you know, read science fiction as a kid and gotten involved in this. This is a picture of the Perseverance rover exploring Jezero Crater taken by its helicopter in flight. And uh, this helicopter is flying in a place where the surface pressure is the equivalent of 80 or 90,000 foot altitude above the surface of the Earth. So this is a pretty amazing device. It's also a device that will help return samples from Mars because um, the plan uh, to bring the samples back requires landing a large lander, which has on it a, a very large, impressive rocket that will take the samples and shoot them up into Mars orbit. And then this will dock with a, a return orbiter. Uh, and then that will come back to the Earth. So this is a joint NASA-European Space Agency project. The problem is the Perseverance rover may not last long enough to be able to trundle up to the lander and dump its samples. And so um, there are two ways that samples will get back to the Earth in these sample tubes. One is by having Perseverance deliver them to the lander. The other is to uh, have these helicopters, which you see in these images here. Um, I don't have a pointer, so I'll just do this. Um, the lander will carry two helicopters. And if Perseverance has died by then, uh, it will have already left a portion of its samples in what's called a cache, C-A-C-H-E, that location has already been picked out, very smooth area below the delta. Uh, those 10 or 12 tubes will be dumped this fall, and then perse uh, Perseverance will go on and do its thing. If it fails, the lander will land at the cache at that point, at that place, and the two helicopters on the lander will fly around, pick the tubes up, and drop them right by the lander to be picked up by the arm. If this sounds technically challenging, it is. <laughs> but it seems to be the only way to really get 40 tubes of high-value Mars rock back to the Earth. So then uh, those will be analyzed in all of the best laboratories around the world and um, with the sensitivity and resolution that you can't bring to Mars and will perhaps tell us whether there are fossils in this, uh, in this river delta. All right, let me move on to the outer solar system. I want to visit two places here. One is uh, Jupiter's moon, Europa. The two places I'm going to visit both have liquid water oceans at the present day. And so they're not places to look for fossils. They're places to look for microbes. Europa has um, it, it's a body with a density that's about three times the density of water. And it's the size of the Earth's moon, as you can see here. So it's mostly rock. But there's an outer layer about 200 kilometers thick that is made of water, not rock. And based upon some measurements made by the Galileo mission, uh, most of that water is liquid beneath the thin crust. There are two lines of evidence for that. One is this weird geology that you see in the lower right where the crust of Europa has been broken up into blocks and moved around. So it's obviously sliding on a frictionless surface. The other comes from um, magnetometry, measuring magnetic fields. Jupiter has a powerful magnetic field, 20,000 times stronger at its surface than the Earth's magnetic field. And uh, its uh, axis of symmetry is tilted relative to the rotation axis. So Europa, this moon of Jupiter, orbits in the equatorial plane of Jupiter, which is perpendicular to Jupiter's rotation axis. The magnetic 
field axis, its axis of symmetry is tilted relative to that by 20 degrees. So as you see in this animation, the field lines of Jupiter's magnetic field, as seen from Europa, bounce up and down. Europa experiences a time-variable magnetic field. Um, if you go take an E&M class, electromagnetism class, not necessarily recommended, but if you happen to do that, you learn that a time-varying magnetic field passing through an electric conductor produces an electric current. And that electric current produces what's called an induced or secondary magnetic field. And that is exactly what the Galileo probe, which you see in the upper right, detected at Europa. Multiple times with multiple geometries, Europa has a relatively high electrical conductivity region close to its surface, so this is not an iron core, so it has to be liquid water and has to be salty liquid water. That is all we know about this ocean. We don't know if there are organic molecules in it. We do know the size of it because you know how much rock is in Europa, you know how big the whole thing is, you know the amount of rock from the density, and you know that most of the ice has to be liquid. Turns out the volume of this ocean is twice the volume of the Earth's oceans. It's the largest liquid water ocean in the solar system in a body that's only the size of the moon. That leaves a lot of space for whales. Big whales. Um, probably not whales there, but what is there? So there's another mission called Europa Clipper, which Father Dominic mentioned, which will carry um, a whole battery of instruments that are listed here by acronym uh, that will observe Europa from the ultraviolet part of the spectrum, the UVS, to the visible, that's the EIS experiment. The MISE instrument, which I'm involved in, measures in the near-infrared and will look for things like organics at the surface. Uh, there are uh, radars and thermal infrared devices to probe into the crust. And then from um, measuring the, the deformation of Europa as it goes around Jupiter, a uh, so-called gravity experiment, uh, we should be able to tell um, something about how deep the ocean is. And then the two red instruments are mass spectrometers to measure any particles that may be coming out in jets or plumes from this ocean. So the launch is two years from now. It will arrive in 2030. Point of that is to determine if this ocean has organic molecules in it. How salty is it? Are there reactions with the rock underneath? Is this a habitable environment? Now, amazingly, we know the answers to all those questions for a more distant moon in our solar system, which does not have the lyrical name Europa. It's called Enceladus. It's also from Greek mythology, and it just happens to have not a very uh, romantic name. But it is the easiest moon to explore. Uh, it is in orbit around Saturn. It is tiny. Uh, it's much smaller than the Earth's moon. It's a mixture of rock and ice. Uh, it apparently is being heated by tidal forces from Saturn as Europa is being heated by tidal forces from Jupiter. But the interesting thing about Enceladus is that the interior is being poured out into space in the form of a large plume. The Cassini mission, which orbited Saturn from 2004 to 2017, discovered this plume you see in the upper middle image very soon after it arrived. That material is coming out of fractures that you see in the upper left, those blue features. Um, that material makes it into Saturn orbit in the form of a ring. You see that in the upper right. 
If you look really close at higher resolution, that plume uh, breaks up into individual jets. And at the very highest resolution, Cassini could image uh, those fractures uh, break into subfractures and subfractures and so on. It is a very fractured, broken up surface of ice where the rock is underneath. It's, uh, Enceladus is about 60% rock and 40% ice. But there is an ocean underneath that ice. And the evidence for that doesn't come from <clears throat> magnetism because Saturn's magnetic field is too weak and too symmetric. It comes from a number of different lines of evidence, and I will only give you two. One of them is that one can actually watch as Enceladus orbits around Saturn in its non-circular orbit. You can see, um, on average, it keeps one face towards Saturn. That's called synchronous rotation. But that face nods back and forth in um, a motion called libration. And our own moon librates by about seven degrees. If you take images of the moon uh, in all its phases, and it's a problem doing that when it's a new moon, you actually see it rocks back and forth. You can calculate how much rocking motion a body should have. If you know its mass, uh, you know the gravity of its parent planet, you know how stretched or eccentric the orbit is. And Enceladus is rocking with an amplitude three times what it should be if it were a solid body. So what's the problem? Is gravity wrong? Uh, we got the mass wrong? Nope. The simplest explanation is that it's the crust of Enceladus that is being torqued by Saturn. And that crust, that outer part, which is a much smaller mass than the total mass of the moon, is sliding back and forth over a frictionless uh, ocean, a liquid water ocean. Well, what's the evidence that it's liquid water? So the large salty grains, which is the next bullet, uh, Cassini carried with it two mass spectrometers, devices for determining the composition of molecules and atoms uh, that can be sampled directly. And because Enceladus is blowing this material out into space, Cassini could fly through that plume of material and actually measure it. And it turns out that most of the grains are water ice, but they're salty. They have 2% salt, which is much more than ice itself can actually dissolve. So those ice grains must have been liquid water that was then flash frozen as it was expelled into space. And that's the other line of evidence that underneath the ice crust of Enceladus is an ocean. So it might look something like this. So does that ocean have um, any sort of uh, interaction with the rock? The answer is it does. This is a rather technical plot from one of the two mass spectrometers, but you see two peaks there labeled SI and O. One is silicon, one is oxygen. They're in a two-to-one ratio. Uh, silicon dioxide, uh, which is uh, silica, these are very tiny particles that were dissolved in the ocean and shot out into space. And we've gone from electromagnetism now to chemistry. So at the bottom of this slide, you see um, a chemical reaction that can produce uh, silica very commonly on the earth. You take a common mineral called phaolite. That's just one possible one. You react it with water and you end up producing magnetite, which is another common mineral, plus uh, three atoms of silica, which is observed by Cassini, plus hydrogen. So did Cassini observe the hydrogen? Well, that's a difficult thing to do because 
the hydrogen easily gets mixed up with water. So on the very final fly-through of the Enceladus plume, one of the mass spectrometers was configured to look specifically for hydrogen, and it did find it in the plume. And so at the base of this ocean is a region where rock is reacting with water, just like in the Earth's ocean. So are there organic molecules? Well, the answer is yes. There are light organics, as seen in the table on the left. On the right is another mass spectrum, which shows the atomic masses, uh, which is a way of identifying the particular constituents. And you see on the right, the heaviest molecules have a very regular pattern. They're separated by 12, which is the atomic weight of carbon. A couple of them are separated by 13, which is carbon and hydrogen. So that's evidence for heavy organics coming out of the plume. So the inside of Enceladus has an ocean with salt water reacting with rock, the way that hydrothermal systems work on the Earth, and organic molecules. So this is the one place in the whole solar system that we know has a habitable environment. And to go look for life would be the next step, which would require more elaborate instruments. You could do it with more advanced mass spectrometers um, that have higher mass resolution and just fly another spacecraft through the plume. Cassini's instruments were not capable of doing that. I'm involved in a project to, um, which is going to be proposed to NASA to do just that. Um, there are also competitors as well. I actually don't care at my age who wins at this point. I just want us to get to Enceladus and look in the plume for life. I'm not going to talk about Titan because I don't have time. That's a body larger than the planet Mercury in orbit around Saturn. It has surface seas of liquid methane. And there's a whole interesting question there of whether there could be a biochemistry that works in liquid methane. But we can talk about that uh, another time. So let me go to the final part of my talk. What does all this say about our faith? What? Is there any implication of finding microbial life as opposed to intelligent sentient life? Well, I think there is, and, and it, it falls into two categories. One is the ethics of sampling microbial life on another world. We casually play around with microbes here on the earth, and uh, we know from Genesis 1 that the Lord has given us dominion over all the other life on Earth. But does that mean we have dominion over life elsewhere in the solar system? Um, what are the ethics of invasively exploring an alien biosphere that we might end up altering? What are the ethics of bringing those microbes back to the Earth? There are two issues here. One is the possible hazard of those microbes interacting with our biology, if they're similar enough. The other is, do we have a right to bring them back? And what are the ethics of exploiting those microbes for medicinal or commercial purposes? I think those are real questions to ask. The other questions are more theological and, for me, more interesting in that regard. What are the implications of having a place elsewhere in our solar system where life had an independent origin, was isolated from the Earth? And then I'll get to the second question in a moment. I found one answer to this in um, the Compendium Theologiae of St. Thomas, where uh, he talks about order and beauty, and he writes, and I'll just not read the whole thing, I'll skip through it, the multiplicity and distinction existing among things were devised by the divine intellect and established in things so that divine goodness might be represented by created things in various ways. And all of this was so that a certain beauty might shine forth from the very order existing among diverse things. 
a beauty which would direct the mind to the divine wisdom. And so the more abundance and expression of life and ways of creating things in the universe, the more beauty and the more that divine order is being displayed. And so I think finding life would be, in that respect, a reflection of God's superabundance in creating many different kinds of things. But another potential implication comes from Mars. Suppose we return those Mars samples, we find evidence of ancient microbial life. Mars is a smaller body than the Earth. It cooled off more quickly than our home planet did. Water appeared on Mars probably before water appeared on the Earth. Because Mars and the Earth are so close to each other, if a large chunk of an asteroid hits Mars, it will blast material off, and sometimes that material gets to the Earth. There are meteorites that are in laboratories now that are known to be from Mars because they have trapped gas in them identical to the Martian atmosphere. What would one say if life began on Mars and got blasted to the Earth and that we are actually Martians in some sort of contingent event? Um, is that sort of randomness uh, an argument against divine providence? So here I think the answer is no, and I take a quote from the Summa Theologiae, and I, I want to thank Father Thomas Davenport, who wrote an essay that steered me to this quote. But Thomas says, St. Thomas says, that divine providence um, imposes necessity upon some things, but not all things, and other things are determined by contingency. But that contingency is also part of divine providence. So simply because we ourselves can't imagine that something that is random or contingent could in fact be part of a divine order, an intentional divine providence, is just a limitation of ourselves as creatures. It's not a statement about God's power, which is omnipotent. And so St. Thomas is perfectly happy with contingent events, and so I don't think he would, be would have been terribly upset if someone told him that we began on Mars and ended up on the Earth. So let me close now with a very wild speculation. We've talked about the development of order and structure and beauty in the cosmos over time. Life is the pinnacle of that. But is it the pinnacle for all time? Is there something beyond what we call life and biochemistry that we just don't know about yet? And after all, life appeared at some point, maybe the first place was the Earth, maybe not. Before that, there was no life. Planets appeared at some point when there were enough metals. Before that, there were no planets. So things appear in our universe as part of the evolution. And is that creativity done? Or is there something that we can't imagine that is something that is more complex, more beautiful, more ordered, more structured than life? So here I'm going way out on a limb, uh, but this is my last slide, so um, I think I'll be safe, maybe not. Um, I think some of this is hinted at uh, by St. Paul in Romans and by the marvelous words of uh, John, the first letter. Uh, so in Romans, of course, St. Paul says that creation was made subject to futility, not of its own accord, but because of the one who subjected it in hope that creation itself would be set free from slavery to corruption and share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. Something new and something different will happen that is not what we experience today. 
And finally, in the words of the first letter of John, Beloved, we are God's children now. What we shall be has not yet been revealed. We do not know that when it is revealed, we do know, I'm sorry, let me start again. We do know that when it is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so the idea that we are not at the end of our destiny uh, as physical, spiritual beings, but only at the beginning of it, I think is consistent with this marvelous, evolving, uh, beautiful universe that uh, we're able to experience and explore and maybe find other life in someday. Thank you. Um, the, the plume yes. is coming out of the planet. How long has that been coming out? And is it eventually going to stop because it will have consumed, if you like, could you shop with? Yeah, I can. Absolutely. So that is a great question. Um, two great questions. The answer to both is we don't know. Um, <laughs> but there are some constraints. So uh, the plume has been steady for the 17 years, uh, so 13 years of, of Cassini, which is not very long. Um, that, that ring that it forms around Saturn, which is a diffuse ring, it's not one of the beautiful rings, uh, was actually discovered in the 1960s at the Allegheny Observatory in central Pennsylvania, but no one knew what it was from, so that's 60 years. And if you look at the surface around those fractures, it looks like they're discolored and there are deposits around them, the thickness of which have been, their attempts to measure it, they're not very convincing attempts, but they would give numbers of centuries. So it's been going for centuries. Now, um, the interesting thing which you alluded to is that if it's been going for the whole age of the solar system, then Enceladus has lost about 20% of the water component. So it was, you know, had 20% more water at the beginning. So it's not in danger of running out of everything. But, you know, there is an asteroid called Ceres, which um, has these sort of mud um, minerals on the surface that have been altered by water. It sort of looks like what you might expect if it had a liquid water ocean and ran out for the same reason. Thank you. That was a really fantastic presentation. Um, I have a question that yeah, might be preliminary to these investigations. Are the components for biological life enough to say that there's life or that there, there was at any point? Or basically, I guess, can, can physics, you know, with great confidence, say that it, it can determine what is necessary for the existence and presence of living things. Right. So the answer to your question is no. If you really want to say that you have found life on Enceladus, you need to have a movie of a cell moving around. I mean, that is the prima facie evidence. And you could do that with microscopes if you collect enough water. But if you fly through the plume with mass spectrometers and measure, you, you find amino acids, and you find fatty acids, and they have a distribution and abundance pattern that's more like what you get in biology than what you get by making them in a chemistry lab at a university, then you would say, I haven't discovered life, but this is looking kind of positive. I have discovered what NASA now calls a biosignature. And that would then be a rationale for going back with more sophisticated devices to actually detect the microbes themselves. 
Um, there are some molecules. Uh, there are things called hopanes and, and stearanes that are so large uh, and their formation is so energetically expensive in a chemistry lab that if you found those, you'd say there's biology there. Question, though, is how excited would you really get having seen the molecule but not the microbe? Thank you, Professor. Sure. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding was that the Galileo mission's lander was originally meant for Europa and was redirected because of concerns about um, sterilizing it or contamination, something like that. I, I might be confused. Yeah, that's not quite right. I think you've put two interesting stories of the space age together, uh, which I often do myself. Um, the Galileo, so Galileo uh, was a mission developed in the 70s and uh, launched finally at the end of the 1980s. It had uh, an orbiter and it had a probe called the Galileo probe. The probe that you're referring to was always designed to go into Jupiter's atmosphere. Um, it was never designed to land on Europa. It basically is a ballistic entry shell. It looks like a, you know, sort of a bullet with a flying saucer tapped, tacked on the top of it. So that wouldn't work on Europa. Um, there was a debate subsequently in going to Saturn about whether the Huygens probe, named after the, the um, optical pioneer Christian Huygens, whether that should be sent into Saturn to replicate what Galileo did at Jupiter or land on the surface of Titan, which Voyager had discovered had this really dense atmosphere of nitrogen and methane in organic chemistry. And there's a big argument about that in the 80s, and it came out to Titan in the end, which I think was very, very good because Titan turned out to be exciting. It has methane lakes and seas. It has a whole weather system made of methane. Um, but that does leave us without knowing the detailed composition of Saturn's atmosphere that would have to be done later. Now, neither Jupiter nor Saturn's atmospheres are targets in the search for life, you want to learn what they're made of for other kinds of planetary science, like how do giant planets form and where did the material come from. But I think th those are really the two elements that, that uh, you may have been thinking of in that case. Uh, landing on Europa, I should say, is very difficult, very expensive. The radiation environment from Jupiter's magnetic field is brutal. Um, the, the plan for doing this, um, which did not ranked very highly in the recent National Academy um, prioritization, um, would be to land and spend 10 days before the spacecraft is fried trying to analyze organic molecules. So, you know, where do you land? What is that surface like? Is that enough time? What if you land 20 feet away from where you wanted to and the organic molecules are over there? It's not a rover. It's a really tricky problem. Um, you mentioned going off the Titan uh, track. So you mentioned that we've been looking at traces or examples of biosignatures for carbon-based life form, essentially. Mm -hmm. And yeah. on Titan, you said it's a methane sea. Right. And what, essentially, my question is, what would be the signatures you'd look for for another type of life, like silicon or whatever? Yeah, so um, we probably wouldn't look for silicon uh, because silicon at low temperatures basically makes quartz. That's the problem. Um, but there could be a kind of a biochemistry that involves different ways of chemical bonding. So in the Earth's biosphere, which is all based on liquid water, the bonds between different organic structures are covalent bonds. They have a certain strength. 
those bonds at temperatures on Titan, which is a really cold place, it's, it's 95 degrees above absolute zero, minus 290 Fahrenheit, those bonds can't be broken. Uh, there's, it's just there isn't enough thermal energy. But there's another kind of bond called a hydrogen bond where uh, a hydrogen atom on one molecule will associate with an oxygen or a nitrogen on the other. That doesn't happen in water because water does all the hydrogen bonding, so it locks out any other molecule from doing that. But that could happen in liquid methane because liquid methane doesn't hydrogen bond. So the speculation is you'd have a chemistry and maybe a biochemistry based on very weak bonds that work at low temperature in a nonpolar liquid. And that's a lot of hand-waving, but it's been fun thinking about it. And actually, Templeton gave me a grant for three years to think about that, and I got this interesting group of physicists and chemists together to think about it. Templeton has this great questions program, and one of them is, you know, is there life elsewhere? And you know, we wrote a, a, a proposal on exotic life, and so it, it was uh, it was fun. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure if this is the correct way to think about this, but by implying that there is some kind of life form beyond human beings, a more structured, more beautiful life form, and by taking into account the fact that we have dominion over lesser life forms, would that then mean that should these two life forms exist concurrently, that this more advanced life form would then have dominion over us? Yeah, so I think that's a big theological problem. Um, what, what I would say is that that box with the question mark on my penultimate slide was not a more um, complex form of life. It was a more complex form of something. So just as stars are simpler than planets and their mineralogy, and that's simpler than biochemistry, and you know we, we are physical beings in terms of our bodies, is there something else beyond that? Is there some kind of structures that are based upon physical laws, or is this it? I mean, if this is it, if you know, life is it, that's kind of a very non-Copernican way to think of things. Uh, you know, why should biochemistry be the pinnacle? So the answer is, you know, I don't know if there would be anything in the future. Um, that future evolution or development or transformation could be us. You know, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin talked about the, the noosphere and the omega point. He um, wasn't all that popular in the church, but he's kind of experienced something of a renaissance recently. Um, so the answer is, I don't know. But in the particular case that you specified, which had to do with a form of life that was more sophisticated, more resilient, uh, you know, more whatever, I think that could cause a theological problem. Please, go ahead. Let's give our thanks to Dr. Lemieux.